you please stand for the reading of the scripture lesson today from Genesis chapter 3. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this thing you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all feasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Let's see here. Where did it go? There we are. Uh, we uh, continue in our sermon series <clears throat> looking at the book of Genesis, sermon series we've entitled The Origin of Species and Everything Else. And uh, we are uh, in uh, Genesis 3 this morning, as you just heard read. And uh, despite the fact that I said we would, uh, we would only be in chapter three for two weeks, it will be three, so I apologize on the front end, uh, but we will be through with chapter three next week. I, that, is, that is a promise that you can take to the bank. Um, nevertheless, uh, here we are, again, uh, seeing how God, uh, caring for his people, the Israelites, as they're about to enter the promised land. Uh, shares and expresses, communicates to them their history that is not simply in slavery in Egypt, but it goes all the way back to the beginning of all things. And here, uh, as we are in our second week, uh, we are learning the beginning of the entrance of evil and sin into God's good cosmos. So as we re-enter this passage, will you pray with me one more time this morning? Heavenly Father, we do ask now that as we come to this, your word, however we have come into this place, whether we are full of joy and celebration, whether we are sad and depressed, whether we are anxious, whether we are fearful, whether there is much in our mind is either something that has recently happened or something we face in the week ahead, however we find ourselves this morning, would you convince us that all of us have one thing in common, at least. And that is when you see us in the midst of our sin, brokenness, waywardness, depression, sadness, joy, the mixed bag that we are, your response is to actually move towards us in redeeming, saving love. And you do that by giving us your word. You've done that by giving us your son. So speak now. Your servants are listening. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, the story is told that in the early 1900s, the Times of London sent out an open letter to theologians, philosophers, thinkers of the day, 
asking for the answer to a simple question. The question was, what is wrong with the world today? What is wrong with the world today? And there was one response that stood out among all of the responses, and it stood out for its profound simplicity. And it was offered by the philosopher theologian G.K. Chesterton, who simply wrote this in response. Dear sir, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Now, that was already in my introduction for this sermon before someone pointed out to me a song that had just been put out by Taylor Swift, who, by the way, I'm not a Taylor Swift super fan at all. <laughs> I'm sorry, if you are, I, I mean nothing against her. I, I don't, I'm not opposed to Taylor Swift. I'm just saying I don't normally put Taylor Swift on my Pandora list. I know that's old school, Pandora's old school, but nevertheless... There's a song on the, her, her new album called The Anti-Hero. And when I listened to the song, I immediately thought, Swift is channeling her best Chesterton here. In the song, this is what she writes. I should not be left to my own devices. They come with prices and vices. I end up in crisis. Tale as old as time. Then later in the song, did you hear my covert narcissism? I disguise as altruism. And then the clearness and profundity in her chorus, also for its no, profound for its simplicity. It's me. Hi. I'm the problem. It's me. What's wrong with the world? I am. What's wrong with the world? It's me. I'm the problem. Now, not the answers that are often expressed when people observe all of the brokenness and the evil in this life, but answers that I would contend are far more instructive than the possible alternative, alternative responses. And in fact, far closer to the biblical picture of what is wrong in the world. Now, let me, let me just say as an aside, the fact that I think these are among the most appropriate <clears throat> and honest and truthful responses regarding, regarding the fallen reality that you and I live in <clears throat> does not at all suggest that you and I are not sinned against and can be and have been hurt by others. This isn't to suggest that we aren't wronged by others for things that we are absolutely not responsible for. When another human being infringes on and dehumanizes your image-bearing capacity and reality, they maintain responsibility, full stop. <laughs> And secondly, when I contend that these are the best answers to what's wrong in the world, it should also not cause you to think that the Bible doesn't know that there can even be widespread and even systemic evil that must be addressed in this world. 
the abolitionist movement, the women's suffrage movement, the civil rights movement, all used a society-sized mirror to show us that. And we are still learning and seeing unjust things that have long gone overlooked. But, but, the fact remains, the answers that Chesterton and Swift offer are informative in how they stand, I'm, by the way, putting Chesterton and Swift in the same sentence, I've never done that before, <laughs> are informative in how they stand in stark contrast to how our first parents perceived of what was wrong when God asked for an account of their actions. Now, last week we saw that God, God's initial posture toward the wayward couple was to seek them out, to go after them, that that is at the core of our God's gracious and merciful nature. He's the one who has a hundred sheep, and when one goes astray, he says, I will not sleep until I find that one. And we saw also that the first human couple thought they could hide. Instead of coming with joy at the sound of God in the garden, their waywardness, their sin causes them to feel exposed and shamed. And they actually run from God, not going out to welcome him, which should have been their natural and appropriate response. You know, there was a time in my life as a young dad, that I would come home at the end of the day, and all three of my little boys would come running to greet me at the door. <laughs> they would hear me coming. Maybe they heard my car pull up. Maybe they heard me walking on the front porch. But they would hear me, and they would come running. Daddy, Daddy's home. And then one day that stopped. <laughs> Altogether. And that was a sad day, and a day that I remember, though it happened such a long time ago, but it happened. They didn't come running for me anymore. Thankfully, now I have a dog, and he, he does. So. <laughs> but here the first human couple, here their father, their creator, moving through the garden, and instead of running out to greet him, their response is to hide. And that's what sin does. It causes us to think and act irrationally. And some of the most outrageous decisions and actions that we as humans make and take are under the influence of dealing with and reacting to our sin. But that's the first consequence that sin caused, a tidal wave of shame rushing into the human experience. They first try to hide from each other, as you'll recall, by making loincloths, and then they try to hide from God. And then they state it. Adam says it. I noticed we were naked, and so we hid. Now, that, that should have gotten our attention because the very last verse of chapter 1, excuse me, of chapter 2, was that the man and woman were both naked. 
and they were not ashamed. But now something has happened that now means to be fully exposed to others, to human, other human beings, and to God himself causes us shame. And this is another example of how irrational sin causes our thinking to be. Because Adam apparently thinks he's telling God something he didn't already know. I was naked. He tells God he's hiding because he was naked. But God made him naked. He formed him out of the dust. He brought his wife to him. That's how they knew each other from the start. It's not news to God that they were fully known this way. God was there. But notice God's follow-up to that statement in verse 11. Who told you you were naked? Nobody has to tell us. We take on and we feel the shame ourselves when we feel exposed. When you and I have crossed a socially unacceptable boundary. It doesn't even require a particular sin anymore, even though it's certainly a consequence of sin's entrance into this world and infiltration into our interactions with other human beings. But ever since our first parents, human race has gone into hiding because of our shame. We hide of our shame. And you and I do it. <laughs> this comes out in multiple ways. You and I avoid commitment. We hide by getting busier. We hide by working harder. We react and get angry. We go out of our way to not make mistakes or be seen making mistakes. We talk in a way about ourselves to get others to notice us in hopes that they will find us worthy of their acceptance. Or we simply play it safe. Or we aren't forthright with others, but rather interact passively, passive-aggressively with others. All of it in order to hide, because we're ashamed. But as we have said, we are now in a mess and a paradox because still imprinted on our psychological and spiritual DNA is a longing to be fully known by other human beings, including all of the great stuff, the neutral stuff, and even the worst stuff about us, and still to be loved and accepted and embraced and not feeling shame. And so our living now in this world is a time where we, the very thing we ultimately long for is the thing we are most afraid of because of that shame. And then it's almost like a concerned, heartbroken parent who just realized that their child completely ignored their wise instructions and decided to absurdly do their own thing, and God continues have you eaten of the tree of which 
I commanded you not to eat? Now, this is God's third question in just a matter of a few short verses. And as the omniscient God that he is, he's therefore not asking these questions as a means of his searching and his need for further information that he was not privy to prior to his asking. Rather, this was God's way of simply trying to draw us back, draw the first couple, when he does it with us, draw us back into the light of humble, repentant honesty about who we are in his presence. But even then, even then, Adam doesn't accept God's invitation to come clean. Instead, the shame that overtakes Adam further imprisons him and keeps him distanced from his good and gracious creator. Shame is not the only immediate result of the fall and an immediate result of our waywardness and sin. There's more. Because when God asks, did you eat from that tree? Adam hides one more time but in a different way. Here, Adam's response in verse 12. There he says, The woman you gave me, gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. In other words, hold on a second, God. (laughs) This is your fault. You caused a chain of events that got me here when you created her. How do I know that God is a patient God? Because he didn't zap Adam right then. (laughs) And he doesn't respond to us either. When we actually try to defend our wayward, sinful actions and even try to justify ourselves. But furthermore, Adam is saying... It's her fault, too. Whatever the case, it's either your fault or hers. (laughs) But it's not mine. It can't be mine. As maddening and as absurd as it is, Adam implicates both his closest confidant, his equal and opposite, opposite ally in their pursuit of the creational mandate and the creator who made them. And that's the second immediate consequence of the fall. After the internal and inward shame, the external and outward blame shows up. For when you and I are exposed, when we've blown it, that's our tendency to go to blame shifting. It's not my fault. We can come up with a thousand reasons why it's not my fault. And notice how it's not only the man, it's not only a man thing to blame shift. All humans do it. (laughs) In verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman's first response, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. As blame shifters, you and I have learned from the best. 
in seminary many years ago, Jen and I, we had, we, we had three children under the age of six when we started. And we had, there were some times in seminary we had a really, really hard time in our marriage. Really hard times. There's a reason that seminary is jokingly referred to as cemetery, not just seminary. At some point, she was complaining that I just wasn't around as much as I needed to be. I wasn't helping as much that I needed to be with the kids. And I felt like she wasn't carrying her weight. Now, if you were married this morning or thinking about ever getting married, please don't do what I did next. <clears throat> I started logging hours that I was with the kids, hours that my wife was solo with the kids, and hours that we were jointly with the kids. I documented that over the next month. And I was right. And I made my presentation. It was logical. It didn't go the way I thought it was going to go. <laughs> Blaming rarely actually helps mend a fractured relationship. But again, that's, that's the irony and the tragedy. That which is at our core and essence as human beings created in the image of a triune relational God, our need for relationships where we are fully and wholly known and loved now become the target of the worst of who we are. It's the arena of hiding. It's the arena of shame. It's the arena of blame. But again, again, God shows a different way forward and reveals a greater part of his benevolent, gracious character and who he is and how he loves and how he relates to his children. Now, certainly God is not fooled by the blame shifting. God's not naive. But if we keep that in mind, I think it's rather telling how God initially responds to all of this hiding, all of this shaming, all of this blaming. Instead of immediately correcting and reproving our first parents, he first demonstrates his ultimate desire, which is to defend and vindicate them despite their faithlessness. Verse 14 and 15, after both of our human parents blamed someone, something else, this is God's first response. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
God goes after the serpent first. The first curse in all of the Bible is applied to the enemy of God's people. And that's how serious God takes an outside and contradictory force and influence into the relationship of God with any of his people. It is not a belittling or, or of the rebellion of his children. God's not denying it. He's going to get to it. The rebellion is clear, and it must be dealt with. Sin must always be dealt with. But of all the roles our eternal and holy God plays in the lives of his image bearers in general and his people in particular, his role of judge is not the first posture expressed when his children go astray. Rather, he prioritizes his role as defender and keeper of his people. He's the good shepherd after all. That sheep didn't get there <laughs> by accident. And God says that there's still going to be some damage here in this pronouncement. There's still going to be more damage done by the evil one. But whereas there will only be damage done by the serpent's seed, the woman's seed will eventually, utterly, and ultimately destroy the serpent. The serpent will inflict, inflict wounds on the heel of the woman's seed, but the woman's seed will eventually deal a death blow to the head of the serpent's seed. And at the cross, Jesus does just that. And he declares victory when he says, it is finished. It is accomplished. The final act of the grand cosmic play is not yet played out on stage. We haven't gotten there yet, but the script is written. It is coming. And it's coming because Jesus, as the second Adam, the better Adam, allows himself to be completely stripped and exposed, literally naked before the whole world, before all the cosmic evil forces of this world. He allows himself to be misunderstood, to be beaten, to be humiliated on the cross, taking on all the blame, all the shame, all of our sin and all evil, ultimately death itself onto himself. And he did, fully aware of and cognizant of and because of all of your sin, past, present, and future and everything else that causes you right now shame, causes you to hide, causes you to defend yourself by blaming others, he sees all of that, all of your brokenness, all the muck, the good things, the bad things, the sin, all of your darkest fears, all of it, he takes it upon himself, blots it out for all eternity, so that when you see him, he looks you in the eye knowing all of that about you, and says, I am the good shepherd. 
And I've gone out to defend you and to crush your enemy. I have redeemed you and I have called you by name. You are mine, all of you. As parents, for the first time, back in 1999, (laughs) we were gifted with our first child who had an energy level that he did at an early age, second to only one child I've ever met since then. And I have run a camp for hundreds of kids for almost 13 years. I've seen lots of kids. (laughs) There's only one child who has more energy than my firstborn son did at a young age. I know Walt who knows who that individual is. <laughs> my son, at an early age, you could tell his brain just never shut down. High energy. Was always thinking about a million things at once. And when he was in kindergarten and others came to school on that last day, dressed as what they wanted to be when they grew up, and everybody was coming as doctors and firemen and policemen and teachers, my son dressed with a coon hat and a rifle and said he wanted to be an explorer when he grew up. And actually he is now. (laughs) He's exploring Hawaii. But when he was at a young age, there were often times Jen and I looked at each other, we didn't know what to do. There was no containing him. There's no controlling him. <laughs> we had many a sleepless night. We pulled out our hair not knowing how to best parent him. I look back now and I've actually had to have a conversation with him and apologize for how hard I was on him because I just didn't know what to do. And there were times that we would get called into school to discuss his behavior. And as a good citizen of the community of that time, I did my duty to go in and apologize for my son's actions and tell the teacher we would do better to get him to behave better. Now, looking back, sure, he caused headaches for his teachers when he was young, no doubt. (laughs) You know what he really needed in that moment? You know what he really needed from his dad, his father? something I was not able to give him at the time because of my own shame. He needed a defender. (laughs) That's what he needed. And thank God I've had an opportunity since then to sit down (laughs) face-to-face with a cigar in one hand and a brandy in the other and tell him, I'm sorry, I I was not your defender. (laughs) But my friends, you and I, We have a heavenly father who knows everything about us, everything, the worst, the worst. And he does not miss his opportunity to be our defender. And as we said, it happened on the cross. He both died and dealt with the way that we have rebelled. But he also went after our enemies. And now, as the psalmist says, he even prepares a table for us in the presence of those enemies. In a few moments, you and I are going to have an opportunity to share that meal, the table that our 
Lord and Savior Jesus Christ prepared for those who were once his enemies, now his beloved, and now defended and continuously fed that we might more and more know less and less of the power of both the enemies within our heart and outside until one day he will put all of his enemies under his footstool. That is the God you and I serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your, your posture towards us even when we go our own way. When we rebel, when we really make a mess out of our lives, you still come after us. You still defend us, you still vindicate us, both taking care of the ways, the consequences, the penalty that we have created ourselves because of our own sin, but also fighting on our behalf. We pray that even as we have heard your word and interacted with it, that we might believe these things even deeper and more fully than we have before. Perhaps maybe that would be the very first time today. Either way, thousandth time or the first time, help us to believe these things, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen.